glad that you are here. And we consider you to be VIPs. Very important people. Connecting with you, hearing your story, finding ways to serve you and love you and care for you and your family is at the very top of the list on, on why we do this thing called church. So I hope you felt that this morning. If not, I hope we fix that before you leave today. Uh, every guest here at Legacy City, uh, from the one that's been with us since day one in, in the the bonus room of my house to the ones who have just maybe uh, wandered in here today thinking that, hey, the theater must have opened a little early. Let me go see what's going on. Um, doesn't matter to me. You're here, uh, and we're glad that you're here, and you are important to God, and so you are important to us. So if you're just joining us, we're several weeks into a teaching series that is walking through an amazing book of the Bible called First Peter. And so we've, uh, we've just been, uh, I think we've, this might be the fourth or fifth week, I'm not sure, it's somewhere in the range, I don't know, we've been in it for, uh, for about a month, all of June. And so uh, if you're just joining us, that's what we're doing. Uh, last week we had to cut the message a little short due to time constraints, so I want to catch you up uh, to where we were, and then we're going to press on into the text for this morning. That's the goal. Uh, that's, that's what we hope is going to happen. The text for last Last week was an ambitious 13 verses from pers- f- from First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 25 is what we were trying to make it through. I think we made it about four verses in, and uh, and then we were done for the day. And so uh, hopefully we're going to make it a little bit further today, and we're going we're gonna to dig in a little bit more. But, but here's the thing, church. The Word of God is so rich, right? That's why we had that entire share and prayer time earlier, because the Word of God is so rich rich is so full of amazing things for us to uh to just to just glean from it's so full of life and truth and meaning the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword scripture tells us is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness the word tells us uh, the bible calls the word of god the sword of the spirit we are blessed by reading and understanding and applying the truths that we see in the word so it's so important. Yes, we're going to take a while to read through this book. This is, uh, I think, uh, in, in the young life of this church, we launched December 31st of, of just uh, 2017, so we're only about five or six months into this thing, and, and I think we've done mostly uh, topical series up until now, so this is a little different. We're actually just walking through a book of the Bible verse by verse, and we're trying to just pull as much out of it as we can without without just spending, like, too much time. Like, we're, we're not going to do, like, a whole year in, in, one, in one, one book right now, but uh, maybe later if God calls us to do that. But right now we're just going to do the summer in this in this uh, book. But there's so many great things. And, and there's some days where we only have made it through three or four verses. Uh, but it's because God has so much to say to us. Just so much to say to us. When I'm sitting down to prepare... And I'm, I'm kind of going through and I read the text and then I, I read a commentary and then I read the text and then I read a, a book and then I go back to the text. And, and I'm trying, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of looking and, I, and I, I have such a hard time deciding what to actually cover. Because if I'm being honest, there are many days where we could just spend the entire morning talking about one or maybe two verses. There's so many days there, where those two, one or two verses could be just so full of, of life and truth that we could just spend the whole time breaking those apart, dissecting those, and trying to understand those a little bit better. But ask God to point me to the right things to bring out. So my goal, just so you know, my goal is not to share with you every nugget of knowledge I have uh, about, or, or any, or no, I'm not trying to share with you every anecdote or every particular, all the information I have about a particular passage every time I come up here. I'm not going to break down the Greek every single time. 
I'm not going to do a word study. I'm not going to go back to the historical cultural context for every single passage and what's going on in that time. Those are important, and we will hit on those things, and those things will come out from time to time, but I can't do it for every verse and every word. We, we, will, we will literally be in this book for just forever. We'll just spend it forever in this one book. Just, we are the church of First Peter, and we're just going to hang out there, and that's it. That's it. It's not always about whether the verbs are imperative or indicative. You didn't know there'd be vocab today, but there is. Sometimes it's just about what the Holy Spirit is showing me through a particular passage and what he's telling me that you need through a particular passage. So my, my commitment to you is that I spend time listening to the Holy Spirit while prepping. I spend time asking the Holy Spirit to speak to me through his word in an effort that, that these are actually his words you hear and, and not mine. I said week one, uh, while we walk through this series, you should follow along at home. Uh, I, I kind of gave you some, some things, and I said I really would love, if you really want the most out of this series, as we walk through a book of the Bible, as we walk through the text, then, then be at home reading it through the week. Read what we just went over and read what you think we're going over next week. Odds are we won't make it there, but, but see, you can try. You can go for it. Get a commentary. You can get them super cheap. And I know it's a scary word, but, but there are great commentaries out there that are actually understandable for, for anybody. If you have a study Bible, you've got a, basically a commentary built into the bottom of that Bible. You can just read through those things. That'll help you to understand a little bit more. Read a different translation. Do some different things. Follow along. Really dig into the Word. If you want the most out of this, then don't let this morning be the only time you actually dive into the Word, into the text that we're talking about. Make it a part of your quiet time or your daily reading and ask, of course, every single time that you open the word for the Holy Spirit to write the words on your heart. Don't just read it for, for completion, but ask and beg the Holy Spirit to write the words on your heart so that you may see and know and understand a little bit more about who God is and who we are in him. That's our goal of reading this. That's our goal while we're going through this. So last week we read 13 through 25. Um, and, and well, we start, we read that, and then we didn't make it that far, but we read that, and we see that Peter is talking about holy living. Uh, living a life that is different, set apart, actually, is, is the words that we're talking about here. And he started this letter calling us aliens or, or exiles or sojourners or foreigners, depending on your version and your translation, what you have. Uh, all of those words kind of mean essentially the same thing. We are not of this world. This is not our home. All right, we're, we're here for a time, we're here for a season, and then we go somewhere else, and that's where we spend eternity. That's our actual home. So we're exiles here on this earth. We're foreigners on this planet. And as such, we should live in such a way. Right? Our life should look a little different. The way we act, the way we interact should be a little different. Because we are different. And so uh, Peter, we said in, in, in verses 13 through, through uh, about 21 or 22 or so, um, he gives us like five different keys uh, on how to live a holy life, how to live a life that is different. And so we hit on three of them, and I'm just going to catch you up on those three real quick, and then I'm going to give you the next two, and then we're actually going to move on uh, to what we're going to be uh, hitting on today. Um, so we said the first key to holy living, and if, if you took notes and you have this, so you don't have to write it down again, but uh, the first key to living as outlined in this passage was, uh, number one, control your mind. Control your mind. And we saw that in verse 13. As we read verse 13, it said, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter knows that, that the truth to holy living begins with right thinking. 
And as believers, we need to have uh, an alert and disciplined and prepared mind, ready for whatever the world or the enemy is going to throw at us for the glory of God. So he said, number one, we've got to control our mind. We saw that in verse 13. And, and then verse 14, uh, we saw that we need to imitate our master. That was the second thing. That was the second thing. We need to imitate our master. Uh, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter pulls some text out of the Old Testament here, quoting Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus, the people of God were being told to be holy and to live differently, to live set apart. And that's, that's what being holy means, uh, live differently than the pagan nations that were surrounding them. All right, they were surrounded by all of these pagan nations that worshipped pagan gods. And, and so he wanted them to be different. God wanted them to stand out in the crowd. How is that any different from us, really? We may not have overtly pagan nations surrounding us like maybe they did in Leviticus. But we do have a broken and fallen world. A world obsessed with, with politics and war and entertainment and money and sex. We have a, a world that's just inundated in those things. Yet we're called to be different. To be set apart. To be holy, the word says. And what better way to imitate what better person to imitate than Jesus himself, who, who lived a perfect life, who set the bar, who has who's the gold standard in how to live a holy life? Why We should imitate him. We should, we should try to, to become and be more like him. That's this idea of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. We should strive for that. He also says the third key. I want to go so much more into that stuff, but we, we kind of hit on that last week, so uh, we got to push on. The, the, third to holy, uh, the third key to holy living, we said, was to uh, inquire of the Scriptures, to ask of the Scriptures, to look into the Word. Uh, he does this. Peter himself does this. He acknowledges the importance of the Word in verse 16 when he mentions, since it is written, and then refers back to the Old Testament text from Leviticus. Since it's written, and then he jumps back. Uh, what is written then is still relevant. That's what Peter's conveying to everybody he's writing to, to the people that he's writing to spread throughout Asia Minor, the church uh, dispersed among modern-day Turkey. And, and writing to us, he's telling us the word that, that was written back then is still relevant today. It's still important today. This word is crucial. All right, what was written specifically for a certain group of people living in a specific context is, is still just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. So go to the Word, seek the knowledge there, and ask for understanding in the process. So here's the next two keys to holy living quickly. We'll hit these, and then we'll push into, we'll push into chapter 2 here this morning. Uh, number 4, if you're taking notes, you can just add this to last week's notes. Number 4 was anticipate coming judgment. Anticipate coming judgment. Why do we live differently in this world? Because one day soon we're going to stand before the judge. It's not to be foreboding or ominous or, or scary. It's just, it's just a fact. One day we will stand before the judge. And if we're being honest, we need to live like we're going to face the judge today. Let me put it this way. If you're facing a speeding ticket, I know none of you speed in here, but... If you're facing a speeding ticket 
and, and you've got to go see the judge and you've got to go try to get that ticket lowered and you want to be, you, you know, you want to get that, that, those points knocked down and you want to get that ticket knocked down a little bit, right? Uh, are you going to go just tearing into the parking lot of the probate court uh, doing 55 miles an hour squealing tires? No, you want to be on your best behavior. You're about to go see the judge. You don't need him thinking about what you just did in the parking lot. You need him ready to grant you your, your pardon, to lower your cost, whatever it is that you're trying to get in that moment. If you're facing the judge, you want to be on your best behavior because in a way we fear the judge. So as Christians, well, actually all humans, we're, we're also going to meet a, a judge and we're to live in reverent fear of him. Look in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This phrase, fear the Lord, is one that, that is often misunderstood, misinterpreted. Um, it's one that, that non-believers and some believers alike struggle with a little bit. If God is my friend, if God is my father, if he loves me, then why do I fear him? Why, why am I supposed to be afraid? What is this idea of fear the Lord? But the idea here is not that we're to be afraid and cowering when we think of God, but instead we're to be in awe of him because he causes us to obey and respect him. Because we know that he is a just God. His justice is perfect. His justice is absolutely perfect which means we are either on one side of the justice or we're on the other. There's no in-between. And as such, we're in reverent awe of him. We love him, and, and, and he loves us, but we also are in reverent awe and, and, and fear of judgment because we want to be moving toward the right side of judgment. So what is our motivation for godly living? holy living. It's knowing that we will stand and give an account of our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We don't live in fear of condemnation, church, but in fear of what we spend our life on will be of no value. I don't know, for me, that's the bigger fear. I have no fear in condemnation. I know I am safe and secure in the hand of the Father. But I think what I fear a little bit more is that, that the things I do here on earth will just be worthless in light of eternity. I find that often we don't struggle with the question of right and wrong nearly as much as we struggle with the question of what is best Many times the things we enjoy, the things the world offers might not be sinful in and of themselves, but they, they might not be wrong, but, but are they of actual eternal value? Listen, church, life is too short to waste it in disobedience and sin. So, so let's live so that when we stand before the judge, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Isn't that, isn't that what we want to hear? Isn't that what we want to experience on that day of judgment? And fifthly, uh, five, he gives us uh, a fifth motivation for godly living. Fifthly, is that a word? Did I make that up? 
That's a real word, right? We'll call it. Confirm your faith. Confirm your faith. That's what he also tells us in verse 18. Peter tells us here that we could, uh, this, this verse and, and this idea that he tells us can be summarized in, in this idea. Be sure of what you believe. Be sure of what you believe. Confirm your faith. Let's look at uh, verses 18 through 21. We're going to read a little bit of a passage here um, for this one. Uh, 18. Knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Come, come on, somebody. What, what does the world think is valuable? You can, you can respond. Silver, gold, money, diamonds, jewels, all of these things, right? He thinks they, the world, but the word says that silver and gold can't even hold a candle to the blood of Jesus. This is the most valuable thing there is. It might not make you rich right now, but there will be riches stored up for you in heaven, right? It, it may not take care of all your problems right now, but church, it will solve all of your problems for the rest of eternity. This is the blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, for the sake of me, for the sake of all mankind. He was made manifest in the last times uh, who through him, are believers in God who raised him up from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We need to confirm our faith. If we want to live holy, righteous, set-apart lives, we need to know that we know that we know. Be sure of what we believe. These verses basically explain our salvation. In the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, they killed lambs to cover sin. The lambs were a picture of Christ who would come and allow himself to be killed, to willingly give up his life, take, to take the place of our sins, your sins, my sins, upon himself. He died in our place, taking the penalty of all sin and all wrongdoing on our behalf. And in this text, Peter reminds us of the highest motive for holy living. It's our salvation. It's our salvation. And he reminds us uh, of the price that Jesus paid. This word in here in verse 18, uh, redeemed, this word, I think, is kind of lost on us today. But when this passage was written, there were probably about 60 million uh, slaves throughout the Roman Empire. Now, a slave could purchase his or her own freedom. They could redeem their salvation if they collected enough funds, of course. And redemption was a, a costly, expensive, precious thing. What this passage does is it reminds us that we were once slaves. We were once slaves to the empty way of life, handed down generation after generation. We were captives to sin and the world, but no matter how much we try, there is no way that we can actually settle that debt. There's no way that we can redeem ourselves, but God. But God sent Jesus to be the redemption, not just for one person, but for all people. Not just a group of people, but for all humanity. Because of that, we're no longer slaves to sin, but have rede been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Paid in full, Scripture tells us. The debt is settled. We are free. Somebody better praise him a little bit because this is exciting stuff, guys. Come on. First Peter 1.20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I love this because, in other words, what he's basically saying here is that, that salvation, the salvation plan was not an afterthought. It was not an afterthought. God always knew what he was going to do for us. He didn't slap together some contingency plan. 
Our salvation is so great, it was a part of his eternal plan. The Message Bible translates it this way. I love this. It costs God plenty. <laughs> I don't know why that word's so funny. I think of good and plenties. Does anybody ever, anybody ever eat those candies that just get stuck in your teeth and they're like tar, but they're kind of good? Well, it costs God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know, just throws that in there, you know. He died like an unblemished, sacrificial lamb. And this was no afterthought. Even though it has only lately, at the end of ages, become public knowledge, God always knew that he was going to do this for you. How about that? He always knew that he was going to save you. He always knew that he was going to save you. He always knew he was going to save me. How about that? He finishes the chapter by giving us a few more thoughts on living holy lives. Uh, We'll kind of just go through these real quick. Verse uh, 22, having purified your souls. Um, we, we need to live lives that are pure and holy by your obedience, obeying the word of God. That's where this comes from. Uh, to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. This is self-explanatory. God loves uh, his creation, so we should also love his creation earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again with Jesus, church, we are a new creation, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable uh, through the living and abiding word of God. Again, it comes back to this idea of obedience to the word of God. How crucial is that for us to live holy set apart lives? To actually, we hate that word obedience. It makes us feel like we're children. But you know what the word of God calls us? Children. We are children of God the Father. And he loves us and he cares for us and he gives us something to live by. He gives us some words to, to, to help us to grow and to become more and more like him. So let's push on into chapter 2 because he kind of continues this thought a little bit into chapter 2. Uh, so, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We're just knocking out a whole list here of sins, of things that God doesn't want you to do. Go ahead and just get rid of those things. Peter's very direct. I like that about Peter. Put away all these things. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk. This is the word of God. That by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What imagery we get from Peter here. You will long for the milk if you have tasted and seen that it is good. We will long for the word of God because at conversion we have tasted and seen that God is good. Listen, church, if you know Jesus, if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then we should long for the word of God. We should long for holiness. That's, we've tasted it. If you know Jesus, you, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you have tasted and seen that he is good, and we should long for that. If you've ever had uh, kids, which has been around babies in general, you know that when it's feeding time, there is no stopping a baby's cry until he or she gets what they want, right? Any, any moms in here can attest? Any, any, any dads getting up at like four in the morning to, to feed a baby a bottle and fall asleep while holding them? I did that. Um, they have a one-track mind. It's built into them to know that when they are hungry, they crave milk, 
and they need it right then. There's nothing else in the world that's important other than getting that thing that they need. That's how we are to be as Christians. That's how we are created, to be holy and set apart. We will long for the word of God. God speaking to us through the text, God speaking through other people, God speaking through dreams, and even God speaking audibly into our ears and hearts. We should long for that. Nothing else should matter in the grand scheme of things except hearing from our God. Kind of like a baby desiring the milk. I'm so excited to get to this next passage. Uh, we don't have a ton of time, so buckle up, because I want to do this whole section together before we leave today. So I'm going to read all this, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to kind of hit on it uh, for just a few moments. So here we go. This is going to be 4 through 10. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages in all of 1 Peter, and so we're going to try to pull as much out of this as we can in, in the time we have left today. So let's read together. Uh, as you come to him, uh, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, <clears throat> I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him uh, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone, and, and the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But, but you are a chosen race. He's talking to us here, church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's so much that we could talk about here. There's so many great things, and unfortunately, we're not going to have the time to hit on all of these. There, there's a lot of titles that's given to Jesus uh, and applied to him throughout Scripture and, and just over time that are linked to either his person or, or even his ministry. As the Messiah, he's been called the Anointed One. The, the Son of God, the King of Jews, the Lion of Judah, the Comforter, the Counselor, the Prophet, the Suffering Servant, the Lamb of God, the High Priest, the, the Day Spring, and the Day Star. He's been called all of those things. In terms of his sovereignty and authority, he's called Lord, Head, Prince, Chief Shepherd, the Word of God, the Firstborn, the Firstfruits, the Frontrunner. In his work of salvation, he is Jesus, Savior, the surety and mediator of the new covenant, the rock and author of life. And as somebody read this morning in the I am sayings of, of John's gospel, he is the bread of life, the door, the light, the true vine, the way and the truth. And the disciples usually called him their master, rabbi, and teacher. And in this passage, he's the precious stone and he's the cornerstone. This is what the word calls him right now. He's the precious stone in the cornerstone. You see, precious stones are mentioned often in the Bible. Obviously, uh, they were highly, obviously, they were highly valued in, in Peter's day. Uh, precious stones are also used in Scripture, though, as a symbolic way to imply value, beauty, and durability. Jesus is like a precious stone. He is valuable beyond all measure. He is beautiful beyond all measure. He is so durable that he has always been and always will be. I mean, that is the epitome of durability, am I right? Then in verses 6 and 7, Peter goes a step further and says, Jesus is called the cornerstone. 
And as we come to Christ, as we come to Jesus, he becomes our cornerstone. Verse 4, as you come to him, this indicates a, a daily personal relationship. As we come to him, as we are living our lives and come to him daily, as we rely on him and as we trust in him, he becomes our all in all. He becomes our cornerstone, the most important piece of the foundation of who we are. He becomes that to us. But verse 7 tells us that, that he is a cornerstone that unfortunately others have missed. Yes, he is very precious to those who believe, but verse uh, 7 tells us that, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is actually a quote from Psalm 118. It's repeated five times in the New Testament, three times by Jesus, twice by Peter, and each time it's referring to Christ as the Savior. Christ as the King of kings, Christ as the Lord of lords, Christ as the one who, who came and atoned for our sins. There's written an event that reportedly took place uh, during the building of Solomon's temple. Uh, it said that it said that there was actually no sounds of hammers or pounding. The temple was actually built in, in relative silence because the plans were so exact that each stone was perfectly shaped at the quarry. When the stones arrived at the site, each one fit perfectly into place. It just slid right into a spot, but one huge stone didn't seem to fit anywhere. And the builders placed it to the side. Eventually it got in the way, and the workmen actually pushed it over the bank, and it rolled into the Kidron Valley. After the foundation had been laid, the time came to hoist the cornerstone into place. So word was sent to the quarry, uh, but the masons replied that it had already been delivered. Church, you know where I'm going with the story. That was the rejected stone. When it was retrieved, it slid perfectly into place, serving as the stone that held all other stones in position. Church, when we come to Christ, he becomes the cornerstone for our lives. He becomes the cornerstone for our church. The, 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 the very thing that holds it all together. So if Jesus is our cornerstone, then what does that make us? Makes us his construction project. All right, where is, where is construction project? Because we're all under construction. Can you relate to that statement? The Lord is building, Scripture says, a spiritual house verse 5 tells us that. And the emphasis uh, of isn't just on his work as, in us as individuals, but in us as a church. Notice how Peter described the church. Living stones being built into a spiritual house. He calls them a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1. Aliens and strangers in this world. The spiritual house is built up of all believers in Christ, and therefore it is the same as the church. You know, the church has this in common with the temple of the Old Testament. It is the dwelling place of God on earth. But it's also different from the temple, which is actually a physical, tangible building that is made out of beautiful, albeit perishable materials. The church, on the other hand, is a structure built out of living stones. That's us. Living stones. Now, now the picture changes uh, quickly in the text from a spiritual house uh, to the holy priesthood that functions in connection with the house. You see, believers are not only living building blocks in the house, they are also holy priests as well. That's right. You didn't realize you were coming here to be ordained as a priest this morning, but you're welcome. Took care of that. 
See, under the Mosaic law, the priesthood was limited to the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. And even those who were priests were forbidden to approach the presence of God. Only the high priest can do that, and only he could do that one day of the year. That's Yom Kippur. That's known as the Day of Atonement. And he had to follow a precisely ordained procedure outlined for the occasion by the Lord himself. Think about walking through all those hoops. Fun fact, he also had a rope tied around him in case he died in the presence of the glory of God so they could pull him back out and he wouldn't just like rot in the Holy of Holies. Now today we live in the new dispensation. We call this the age of grace where all believers are priests with instant access to the throne room of God anytime, day or night. As priests, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are in contrast to the animal, bird and mill offerings that were done under the Mosaic law. So real quick, so as to not leave you hanging and confused about the sacrifices you must make in your newly found role as a priest uh, in the kingdom of God. So I want to make sure that you know what these spiritual sacrifices are that he talks about in 1 Peter. I think there are five spiritual sacrifices for the New Testament priests. You can write these down or not. I'm just going to run through them real quick. Uh, One is the presentation of the body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is a spiritual uh, act of worship. This tells us in Romans 12. All right, that's the first one. Our our, our bodies is a living sacrifice. Number two is the, the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips uh, that acknowledge his name. Three, the sacrifice of good works. Do not neglect to do good, Hebrews 13, 16 tells us, because this sacrifice is pleasing to God. Number four, the sacrifice of possessions, resources, or money. Do not neglect to share what you have, Hebrews 13, 16 also tells us. The sacrifice is also pleasing to the Lord. And number five, the sacrifice of service. Paul speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles as a priestly offering in Romans 15, 16. Uh, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. These are our five things. These are, these are our five sacrifices as priests. We don't have to do the mill sacrifices. We don't have to do, thank goodness, the lamb, uh, the letting of blood sacrifices. We don't have to do any of those things because, because we are priests in the age of grace, and, and we actually get to make other sacrifices because God has also already made the ultimate sacrifice for us. The blood has been spilled. It has been shed, and that has atoned for everything. And so now what we do is as we live in that grace, as we live under his merciful hand, we get to actually offer up better sacrifice. We get to offer up amazing sacrifice. We get to offer ourselves. God, take me. Use me. L- allow me to be your hands and your feet. All right, we get to, uh, we get to tell God, hey, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to give you my voice. I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you everything I have. We get to sacrifice good works, serving the Lord, serving others, our, our possessions, our resources, our money. These sacrifices are acceptable to God through, you have to understand this church, through Jesus Christ. It was only through Jesus Christ, our mediator, that we can approach God in the first place. He's the only one who can make our offerings acceptable to God. That's kind of the caveat. You see, the priests of old, they would would cut the neck of the lamb and they would allow the blood to drain. And that, was the atonement. The blood was spilled. Jesus did that in our stead. So now it's through Jesus that our sacrifices go to God. 
It's through him that, that our offerings are acceptable to the Lord. All that we do, our worship, our service, all of this, everything we do here on Sunday morning is imperfect. It's flawed. It's marred by sin. But before it reaches the Father, it passes through the Lord Jesus. He removes all the sin. And when it reaches God the Father, it's perfectly holy and acceptable. Come on, somebody, that is incredible. There's a filter. There's a mediator. There's somebody there in the middle, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. If you've ever watched uh, a church building while it's under construction, you know that the foundation, any building really, I don't know why I said church building, but uh, the, the foundation is laid first, then the walls, and then the roof. Denver, is that the general way you build, how you build things, right? Foundation, walls, roof. Okay, so, so that's how it goes up. We understand that. But as we said, the building, a building isn't the real church. The real church is made up of the people who come into the building. The church is a people, not a place. And we, they are under construction too. All of these pieces, all of these people, all of these living stones are under construction too. God is building his church. We are his construction project. Friends, God is making, developing, growing, and building each one of us. God is building a temple out of living stones, and we are privileged to be a part of it. We are built on Jesus Christ. So there is no way the temple can be destroyed. There is no way that it can fail. So we are, that, are we that important that he secured us in this way? It's the question I have to ask myself. Am I, am I that important that he would? Yes, but because we have a divine purpose for our lives. Verse 9 says, and we're going to run through this real quick. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We could easily spend an entire message on each of these elements, but I'm going to be really brief because we have negative one minute. Here we go. A royal priesthood. We've already talked about this a little, but the Old Testament priests were intermediaries between God and man and God's representatives or ambassadors here on earth. Because we have uh, been given direct access to God through faith in Jesus, we no longer need uh, to approach God through some other man. I now have immediate access to God. I don't need another human priest as a mediator. God himself provided uh, the, the, the one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus Christ. I have direct access to God now. I don't, have to, I, I don't just waste away my time doing nothing. I can now minister in the presence of God. All of my life is a priestly service. I am never out of God's presence. I am never in a neutral zone. I, I am always in the court of the temple. We are to be God's representatives and ambassadors here on this earth. Peter refers to us both as a royal priesthood and a holy priesthood. Yes, it's true that not all of us are preachers or evangelists or missionaries or singers or gifted teachers, but we are all priests, are all set apart for and by God. We're chosen race, it says, uh, just as Israel was chosen by God, apart from anything that merited, uh, anything that merited God doing so, he still chose them. We have been chosen by God, apart from anything that we have ever done or could ever do to earn or merit being his chosen people, except for by the blood of Jesus alone. It calls us a holy nation. We are not just a run-of-the-mill people in this world anymore. 
We have been set apart for God. We exist for God. And since God is holy, we are holy. We share his character. He, we talked about this a little last week and even at the beginning this morning. As God's children, we have been called to live lives that are set apart, unique and distinct from those in the world around us. It says that we are people for his own possession. Listen, I know that God owns everything. So in one sense, everyone is God's possession. But this means something special. We are God's inheritance. We're the ones he aims to spend eternity with. We belong to God because he has purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus. By the way, church, if you aren't enjoying these facts about who you are, it's not because they're beyond your reach, but it's because you're living below your privileges. These things are true for every follower of Christ. When I'm feeling like I don't measure up, I have to remind myself of truths like these. Thinking about who I am to God, that'll, that'll quickly kill my complaining, my wishing, my wanting. It will give me a greater joy and contentment. I don't have to prove to you that I'm worth something because I know that I am worth something to the God of the universe. These four elements describe who God has made each of us to be in Christ. That's our identity. That doesn't mean that we automatically fulfill those roles to the degree that which God intends us to do so. That's why in verse 5 we saw that God is building us, continuing to build us into a spiritual house. It's a process. There's so much more that we missed and we skipped along the way. I want to encourage you to go back and read some more. Take a look at the text deeper this week. Understand a little bit more about who you are in Jesus, your identity found in him as, as Peter talks about here in this passage. I just want to leave you with this one last verse. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to leave you with it and then I'm going to pray. And then uh, I think Dave's going to come and give you some closing words. It says this in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God, thank you so much that we are now a people. We are your people. The people of God, a holy priesthood, a, a, a holy nation, a nation set apart. We are your people. Thank you so much, God, for saving us, for taking us in, for allowing us to be your children. I pray, God, that we would understand and remember and know who we are in you. God, that we would rest in that, we would believe in that, we would trust in that. God, I pray that we would have this desire and hunger for your word, that we will dive in. God, we could, sp we could spend some time and get so much more out of the word than we got here this morning. Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts and into our lives through your holy word. We thank you so much for what you've done in this place. Give us a great week. Bring us back safely. It's in Jesus' name.